Kara Ward is a Washington, D.C. attorney and member of Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. She focuses her practice on financial services in the housing finance market. She has experience with issues related to housing finance reform, consumer financial services, blockchain, and community economic development. Combining federal and private practice experience, Kara provides various financial service companies and trade group clients with policy analysis and strategic advice to advance their business objectives on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch. Kara frequently works on issues involving the U.S. House Financial Services Committee, U.S. Senate Banking Committee, U.S. Department of Treasury, and more. Meet the leaders shaping the new era of credit. This is the Vantage Core Podcast. Today, we talk to Kara Ward, partner at Holland and Knight. Part two. When thinking about housing finance in 2021 and in the Biden administration, you're really looking at like what are the levers available to the federal government or to policymakers to make housing more affordable. And interest rates can't go much lower. So arguably housing finance, the loans are arguably affordable, but there's two major factors that are going into making it unaffordable. And the single biggest one is supply and demand. The houses that are coming onto the market are getting bid up so quickly because there's just an incredible shortage of houses that things become unaffordable just because of the inventory shortage. So that's the number one concern is that there's no houses to buy at $300,000 or less, which is you know roughly where consumers who are earning $75,000, which used to be like a pretty comfortable place to be in your late 20s and 30s um, to be able to, to establish home ownership. There's nothing to buy. And then the next part is, is when you are able to buy something at $300,000 or even a little bit higher, you're competing against so many other people that it just, it slips through your fingers as people just bid up, you know, the $300,000 house to $500,000. So inventory is the number one concern. The second concern is, all right, so if we do start building more houses, which is really what we'd like to see in something like an infrastructure package from President Biden or just conditions that like get hammer swinging and places built in the available land where folks like you and me want to live, is looking at the things that make interest rates unaffordable or in the long term, even if you could afford more house, how the interest rate goes in there. And what I'm talking about here is saving for a down payment or reducing the risk for a bank giving you a loan by having a chunk of reserves to help you through a rainy day. So while you could only post up where you plan to kind of put a down payment down of like three or 5%, something modest, and then have three or $4,000 in the bank to help you through any period of short-term job loss or, you know, new roof kind of issues. Those are the things that like drive up an interest rate and take a historically low interest rate that could be around three and a quarter percent and mark you up to 5%. So what's interesting to me in housing finance reform and the way that the government is looking to subsidize home ownership One, they've got to build some stuff. And two, instead of just trying to focus on bringing down interest rates, think about ameliorating the conditions that drive a high interest rate, which is low down payments and lack of reserves. So subsidizing the ability for a consumer to have a down payment, or if they've saved enough for a down payment, port everything into down payment, make a subsidy available for some sort of savings vehicle for a cushion to help them stay housed so that the bank knows that they'll pay the mortgage, even if there's like a small income disruption or, or as I said, like car accident or roof needs repair. I think it's part of the pandemic, just reestablishing life as normal, which is, you know, making 
and creating households and making and creating families. Very few people aspire to have a family in a two-bedroom apartment or a one-bedroom apartment with like a third-floor walk-up, right? You would aspire to have something maybe with a yard in the driveway. So coming out of the pandemic, there's two major responsibilities. One is to keep people housed and make sure that there isn't a spike in homelessness or home insecurity, you know, couch surfing or doubling up or creating more multi-generational houses. And then the second is the return to normal, which is the regular rhythm of living in places with a driveway and, and a single family home. I'll say this, one of the things that's a big surprise out of COVID-19 is the narrative around millennials, of which I'm at the top of the, the millennial stack at, at being 38, but there was this view that millennials didn't value home ownership and, and millennials wanted to live in cities by Starbucks all the time. But what was funny in COVID-19 is that we watched like the flight from the cities and the existence or the, the creation of Zoom towns, not boom towns, Zoom towns where we could remote into work and maybe move to like a warmer climate or a climate with more natural beauty than Murray Hill in New York City. <laughs> um, and COVID-19 really, I think, accelerated a lot of the young people's decisions to get out of the city and really tested the assumption that millennials wanted to live in apartment buildings for the rest of their lives. No, like they're ready to get out there and live somewhere less densely populated than a rental in a densely populated city would afford. So that's been interesting in COVID-19 is it's forcing people to rethink the way that economic opportunity and jobs and like where you need to live for the kind of job that you'd like to have doesn't have to be in a city. And when you get out of the major cities, you very quickly like get into markets that are perceived as more affordable or where the expectation is that you own, not rent. That big reckoning for how the job market's going to adjust to Zoom is coming. And I don't know what flavor it will take, but my suspicion is that people aren't going to come back to cities as quickly as we expected them to. And they're going to feel and readjust their life and their work to accommodate whatever comfort that they've taken from their move in COVID. And what does advancement look like is a big question in the COVID-19 Zoom world. You know, like young folks who are trying to make their way up kind of need to be around people to learn more or to get like sort of an informal channel on like good projects that are coming up in order to advance themselves. And you don't get that sitting in your basement by yourself. You kind of get it around the water cooler. So the value of that soft sell is coming back too. I don't know. There's much bigger brains who are thinking about the future of work than me. But what's interesting is the future of work is going to change the way that we live. And I suspect People are going to want to keep living in suburbs or living in Zoom towns as long as they possibly can. So I have been a volunteer at the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless since 2008. And I was very easily recruited at a lunch that they hosted with may or may not have included free sandwiches um, for young attorneys to come in and help with the backlog of cases. What's interesting about being a legal clinic for the homeless in D.C. provider is that of the 50 or 60 or so people that I've helped, very few of them have been on the street living outside. Most have been insecurely housed, as we would say. And I developed a little bit of a niche in working with people who had housing choice vouchers to live in different apartments across the city, where with a federal voucher that would pay 70 or even 100 percent of their rent. 
but it was still a private landlord. So we're not talking about living in project-based housing. We're living in sort of scattered places that would accept the voucher. I had a little niche where I was helping a lot of folks who were coming in the door saying, I'm a threat of being kicked out or losing my voucher because the landlord wants me out or my paperwork has come out of order and I don't have everything I need for the renewal or I missed a deadline. It feels less lawyerly and more almost social worker. It's like, here's the network of problems you have. Let's get all of your documents together and let's organize you in your responses and get you back on track. So frequently, but also by the time someone's threatened with homelessness, a number of other breakdowns have occurred in their life, usually like major health problems or major emotional distress with the loss of a, a friend or partner or family member, and things just sort of deteriorate or spiral out pretty quickly. And as a homeless volunteer who's supposed to just be dealing with the legal stuff, you end up handling a fair bit more. And might I say, ruining the day of some slumlords across DC. That's one of my favorite things is getting on the phone with my meanest lady lawyer voice and being like, what do you mean you haven't provided the client with a key to the mailbox? <laughs> like, <laughs> and just like ruining their day until I get like an overnight FedEx of the key to the mailbox um, and my client gets one at the same time. <laughs> That's just one example, but like I will ruin a slumlord's day. Um, you know, the toilet hasn't flushed in two days. Like, what are you doing about it right now? Well, we're going to send someone out next week. No, what are you doing about it right now? You've got 15 hours to respond before I file a case or something like that. 15 hours, five hours to respond before I file for an injunction in DC Superior. But that's my favorite part of Legal Clinic for the Homeless is like taking some folks who have limited self-advocacy or feel a bit beat down by the system and fixing things up for them and making them feel more valued because they have an attorney looking out for them and, and making sure that people aren't messing with them is the way that, that my clients would most frequently talk about it. When I work with the legal clinic for the homeless and how I bring that to my experiences working as a DC advocate is the two cross-pollinate. Because while I'm not really like shaking down or like looking to ruin the day of an FHA administrator over at HUD, and I might be doing that over at the DC Public Housing Authority. The way that you kind of learn to deal with folks who feel empowered to say no is an interesting skill to have. And sometimes you just got to be sweet and you can get what you need with someone who wants to say no because they have a modest amount of power or are afraid of change or doing something out of the normal, seeking some sort of waiver. Sometimes you need to be sweet and sometimes you just need to ruin their day to be annoying enough for them to do what you want. So there's a lot of learning about people and sort of the experimental nature because how quickly things move with my legal clinic for the homelessness. I've been exposed to more people more often with like deeper issues. And so I've been able to kind of test out my thoughts and theories on human behavior. But what has also been really interesting and that I've been able to bring to my housing expertise is understanding just how close folks who are in subsidized housing are to losing everything. You know, we talk about the studies that say how many Americans have less than $400 in their account to be able to insulate them against crisis. I mean, we're talking about people that live on budgets that can't handle a $50 or even $25 kind of crisis. And to see how quickly that spins out from happily housed, but struggling financially to lost everything and your health deteriorates your personal relationships because you're relying on people to couch surf or like take you in and they're already stressed environments. 
you know, you just, you appreciate something that being insulated in the 10th floor of my fancy law firm, I, I don't see every day. I think it keeps me grounded in a way that I understand what we're really working for when we say that federal policy needs to serve the least among us or exercise a preferential option for poor people. What's unique about American housing instability, and I'm using that term, which sounds like a little bit wonky, is that homelessness isn't just people who choose to live outside or who find themselves living outside and homeless. There's a large degree of housing insecurity of folks who are just like one or two days away from potential eviction and coupling up or doubling up families outside of the terms of the lease, you know, or couch surfing, as we would say, or living in a car. So housing insecurity in the United States is so much more invisible. It's not just millennials moving home and living in their parents' basement. It's anyone having to find themselves needing to live with family. And if your family connections, your family net is already strained or invisible due to imprisonment or death, and we've got, you know, huge impacts on families right now with 300,000 plus Americans dead, the net that would catch us when things go poorly is so porous, particularly among the economically disadvantaged that like homelessness can happen to anyone. That's what's disturbing about the American experience is homelessness isn't just living outside. It's just the insecurity of finding reliable shelter to call your own. How can the fintechs or financial services help better serve and protect against homelessness? I think helping more people become banked would ease some of the paperwork stress that keeps a lot of people in crisis poverty. But honestly, like, it's really about creating livable wage jobs and housing that can keep up with wages. You know, we've talked about wage stagnation in the United States for 20 or 30 years where the cost of housing has not kept pace with the wages that people earn who are working. And the answer to it may just be more housing but more housing that I would hope isn't subsidized, but that can naturally occur, that is safe and clean and decent for someone who's working or partially worked or, or slightly underemployed. And right now there's no housing for people who are working minimum wage jobs or earning less than full-time minimum wages. There's nothing available for them to feel secure in housing right now. And that is the single biggest issue. So what can finance do? Figure out a way to build more houses and not make it luxury townhomes. I have always been interested in helping in social justice issues. And living in Washington, D.C. and working in Washington, D.C., there's a way that the urban core helps you appreciate the haves and the have-nots. There's sidewalk economies, and then there's what's happening on the 10th and 11th floor of my class building. And that economic disparity has always been very clearly described to me, probably thanks to being very Catholic. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through college and Catholic social thought and just the way that my ethics and morals were put together was, you know, what are you doing for the least among you? And there's no greater need than folks who find themselves without shelter. What's interesting about being a lawyer lobbyist in DC, or as we would say, like a gun for hire, my success isn't my own. It's always under someone else's label. So I win when my clients win. And arguably when my clients win, I shouldn't be associated with it at all. <laughs> I should be invisible. 
I'm the hand that stirs the drink, as they say in like the 1950s, like um, housewife history, the hand that stirs the drink and keeps the conversation going, but I'm not really the center of any of it. But some of the things that I've been really proud of being able to do is create connections between unexpected allies. And what I'm saying about that is being able to look at a public policy issue. For example, I remember helping a client who makes a form of plexiglass. Stay with me. This is going to get a little bit weird. Makes a form of plexiglass. And he was making it in Dayton, Ohio or Cincinnati, Ohio or something like that. And what he noticed is that a couple of houses that his sister-in-law or his sister and brother were living in were being boarded up and were really sitting there deteriorating. And the whole neighborhood looked terrible with the plywood boards in the windows. So he went over to one of these houses and puts up the plexiglass to like secure the window rather than, than plywood. And everything seemed to look a lot better. And he did it on the whole block. And then he was like, we should be actually selling this everywhere. It's called Clearboard. Plexiglass is actually a brand name. I shouldn't use that word. Anyway, so he's talking about, he's like, arguably, I just want to sell more plexiglass, but I think this would have a big deal on preserving communities and the housing stock that's kind of become vacant and abandoned. And it turned into this much bigger conversation where now the community advocacy groups, the banks that own these houses that have been foreclosed upon, and the community policing and the mayors are all like, yeah, don't put plywood up anymore because that looks horrible and it looks like an invitation to exploit the house and go and steal the copper pipes. And it depresses emotionally everybody around there. Instead, put up the plexiglass so it looks like the house is still inhabited (laughs) and we can sell it for more according to the banks and according to the advocates, like you've now preserved housing stock that would otherwise be decimated and not available to a new family to move into. That sort of relationship building where it starts with a guy who just wants to sell plexiglass and then all of a sudden becomes a public policy movement where Fannie and Freddie and FHA, when a house has the sad experience of being foreclosed upon and becoming vacant, now they pay twice as much for the plexiglass just to protect the community around it. You're like, well, what was that about? A guy who wanted to sell more plexiglass all of a sudden has a community of people on the right, which I would consider like very conservative banking interests, and the left, the community advocates, and then the odd intersection of however you want to feel about it, like community policing, saying like, this is all a good idea. We should do this. And the guy sold more plexiglass. That is a weird marriage of public policy, like doing something good that is a win, 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 win. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of VantageScore Solutions. This podcast is brought to you by VantageScore Solutions, a higher level of confidence. Thanks for listening.